0: welcome to the radical bureaucrat a podcast for people who want to change institutions from the inside today
1: Today, oh uh, we're rusty abram today is wednesday march 3rd 2021 And Abram, it's been a long time since we did this.
0: Yeah, it's been a while, almost a year in fact. Uh, We're back to discuss the recent news in New York City that Chancellor Richard Carranza is leaving the New York City school system and will be replaced by uh, Misha Ross Porter. Uh, And this is huge news uh, with lots and lots of implications that we'll get into in a second. But before we do, uh, let's just uh, quickly give new listeners a chance to orient themselves to the podcast.
1: Right, So, so here are a few basic things listeners should know. I'm Sam. My podcast podcast partner is Abram, and we both work in central offices for the New York City school system. We haven't taped since last March, April, and May, when we recorded 20 episodes in quick succession about life and justice at the beginning of the pandemic. I was just listening to some of those episodes in preparation for our comeback, Abram, and it's really interesting to hear what we thought on March 16th and how that thinking evolved through the season uh, I'll tell you one thing, we never anticipated that we would be working from home a year later.
0: That's right, yeah, and uh, here we are, you know, we've made so many adjustments to this new normal and I've got my air quotes on for our, uh, for our listeners. Um, and, and it really has us thinking so critically about the old normal and all of the calls to go back to normal A general feeling that maybe things will never really be the same as they were before. Uh, And so with all that in mind, we've got two, and I really, really can't emphasize this enough, two really incredible guests joining us to really help make sense of the current transition, the context in New York City, uh, the nation's largest public education bureaucracy at the very top, the chancellorship. Uh, And so before we get to them, I just have one question for you, Sam. It's been less than a week since Chancellor Carranza announced that he was stepping down. And people may want to know, is it too soon for us to assess impact? I mean, certainly we're not gonna talk about legacy necessarily, but I mean, isn't he still chancellor for a few more weeks?
1: Yeah, he is. Um, He he gave his two week notice though. And so I think it is is good time to talk about it. Uh, And here's why. First is he undoubtedly has created some space for action, which we'll get into. And it's important to recognize those spaces and those opportunities. Uh, The second thing is I think too often, I really feel this from like the bottom of my heart. We tear our leaders down, but we don't acknowledge their strengths. And I'm not here to lionize Chancellor Carranza, right? He's just a person, um, but I do wanna give him his due. And I think that when people step out uh, in, especially in the name of justice, uh, it's important to do that. And third, the, if we don't tell the story of his chancellorship other people will. And so it's important that we record our thoughts That the story, so that the story of his time here isn't defined only by those who would oppose any challenge to the status quo, you know, only by his enemies, really. Like, uh, let's make sure that our thoughts are part of the record.
0: Yeah, we all know uh, that uh, what Zora Neale Hurston taught us, which is that if we don't learn to tell our own story, then they'll kill us and say that we liked it. Right? Um, And so the stories that we tell ourselves about transitions like this shape our understanding of the opportunities and the threats presented Uh, and they teach us how not to be fooled out of our freedom by anyone with power. The stories that we record on the podcast are about understanding our places vis-a-vis these institutions and systems and how we can disrupt and transform the public trust that our communities will need us to build in this different future together. Uh, I can't imagine anyone better to help us think through this landscape uh, uh, than the two incredible guests we have, uh, both of whom are leaders in their own right for social justice, warriors in the proud tradition of black and brown ancestors, steeped in the brilliance of those traditions and a life living and organizing for justice inside and outside of our school system here in New York.
1: Yeah, in fact, both of them are people who I look up to and admire for their leadership and willingness to speak truth to power.
0: Yeah, and that, you know, we're not saying that because we're just happy to have you on the podcast. We really mean that. We both feel lucky that you guys are here with us. Absolutely. Uh, I think maybe the best way to introduce them is to maybe briefly read that uh, that great source of identity formation, the Twitter bio. And so the first guest is Sadie Campoamor. Uh, and Sadie uh, Sadie is a great friend and really a sister to me. Uh, in so They're many laughing,
1: they're by the really way, you can't hear her. them, but they're muted listeners. They <laughs> yeah. we kind to laugh out of that one. <laughs>
0: um, you guys could unmute you to laugh. We like laughter on the podcast. <laughs> Uh-huh. Sadie uh, describes herself on Twitter as a lover and a fighter, uh, an anti-racist mama, a wife, friend, organizer, and lifelong learner. Proud NYC public school grad and community affairs for the NYC DOE. Uh, and she, uh, yeah, she, uh, she gave the the uh, black power fist there. The uh, yeah, right up. Uh, Guest two is uh, Zakiya. I'm sorry, uh, who tweets uh, as a black Muslim mom of eight. Advocacy director for AQE, the Alliance for Quality Education, New York, a uh, great organization, working with parents, youth, and communities of color to transform their public schools. Hashtag education for liberation. Uh, don't sleep on that hashtag. Sadie and Zakia, we're so honored to have you. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Yes. This is very full circle for us because Zakia and I have been working together since 2010. Since I'm I mean, wow. probably working on this longer than that, but I came into the education space, to the government space, um, particular in the public advocate's office under Bill de Blasio, and uh, was introduced to Zakia. I even in my past life applied to a job at AQE. As a parent organizer, so we've we've been in we've been in this discussion and quest and experiment to justice for many moons. So if I'm going to be on any podcast to be <laughs> to be with Zakiya, yes. a very nice pairing, if you will. I agree.
1: See, we we had a feeling that the, the pairing made sense, and and we uh, suspected that you two knew each other quite well, but we did not know that listeners. Uh, that's that's surprise, we're learning yeah. this right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and Sadie, you're actually getting into my first question, which is, uh, we were going to ask you both to expand on your Twitter bios to let listeners know a little bit more about what you do, how long have you been doing it, and, you know, how does your work, how is your work impacted by the Office of the Chancellor, uh, so that we get a sense of your perspective. So, Sadie, if you want to pick that thread up, since you already started a little bit of your background, um, can you tell us a little bit more?
2: Yes, I'd love to um so thank you guys for having me on the show i'm, I'm one of your biggest fan uh or one of your biggest fans so thank, thank
0: you, you
1: for doing this the our our one fan yeah, no, you are the, no, fan, no, the no, one no. fan she's she's but she's she was early she was early on the uh on the radical bureaucrat train so appreciate
2: that. Well, um real recognized real so just shout out to you guys for showing up in this way Um, and for choosing and for making a creative cool choice to show up in this way. I'm always here for like innovation and making the movement like fun and irresistible. So here we are. Thank you. Um, (laughs) I also get to work with you in my formal capacity too. So that's also fun. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, What's up everybody? Sidi Campo Amor, humble and excited guest um, uh, this evening. Uh, Born in Central America, El Salvador, raised in New York City by a single mama um, in downtown Manhattan proud public school graduate um, was often one of the only people of color in many of my classrooms. Um, and so the imprint of segregation and racism is alive and well. Um, I'm also a public school parent now. Uh, I have a kid in pre-K, um, and he is the reflection of the anti-racist world I wish to see. I identify as an anti-racist, a pro-Black anti-racist, uh, a community organizer, a facilitator, And I do this work for my mama (laughs) and I do this work for my son. And my job job as director of community affairs, I have the privilege of working with um, people external to the DOE students and community board members and parent leaders like Zakiya. Um, and advocates, a bunch of different beautiful folks who are not employed by the DOE and I engage them as primary partners in educational transformation. Um, And then the flip side is I work internally in the DOE to make sure that they value community engagement, that they value community voice and that they understand that public policy works really well when you engage the public Um, and and actually loop them in and and let them guide the way because they know what's up. Mm -hmm. Um, So lifelong learner and excited to be in this learning exchange with y'all. This work is as much um, personal to me as it is professional. So power of the people, happy to be here.
1: Thank you. Welcome, Sadie.
3: Uh, Yeah, thank you. I must say um, I did not know about the podcast, but Mm -hmm. I will have to check it out and go back and and listen to it. So um, thank you for having me on. Let me see. I'm, I'm trying to follow Sadie. Uh, I thought it was really good. Well done. Uh, so yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. Um, raised uh, at the age of 10 by a single mom. Um, previous to that was uh, an abusive home. Where my father abused my mom. Um, and she got us out of there. My brother and I uh, went to public school uh, all the way up to high school. Finished some college, CUNY. Uh, and then my husband, who was we met in high school, uh, married and we had eight children. Uh, the baby is 20, will be 21, and the oldest will be 35. And now we have grandchildren in the public school system, um, and some that are too one is too young to be there. Uh, I started as a parent leader with the Alliance for Quality Education, um, I think in 2000. Nish 2000 uh, around the camping physical equity work um, and uh, didn't know what organizing uh, any of the or any of that was um, kind of fell into it in a powerful way. I think I was being lost in uh, motherhood and wifehood and it came at a perfect time of Giving me something that now that my children are all grown, I'm not like clinging to them, like, why are you leaving your mother? I have my own thing there. And now they're like, they're always they're like, Ma, where are you going? Where, where, are you, where are you flying to now? Where are you going to be? You know, this is pre COVID. Um, and AQE is the leading statewide advocacy group, right? And we're 21 years old. I've been doing this work for about 21 years this year as well. Um, and we were we started as an advocacy piece of the campaign for fiscal equity. Here we are 14 years in, almost 15 years in, um, and we still have yet to create equity in public schools or fully fund the Campaign for Fiscal Equity Lawsuit. And so that has been our mission and journey. We organize with parents, um, young people, community members and educators across New York State, not just New York City. Um, Not an easy task, but one that is definitely needed. And if we were not around, there's no doubt, it's not about tooting a horn, it's just reality. There would be much more cuts to education um, than we are have already seen. Um, and now we are in hype mode through, during COVID because we've had to organize on all levels of government, not just city and state, it's been federal as well. But we're up for the task. Uh, we have a new ED, Jasmine Gripper. So we are all fem organization as well as led by a black woman. Super exciting. And we've been doing some really phenomenal work and I don't think it'll stop. But um, yeah, this is a tough time right now. Uh, as we, st- we currently right now as we sit four weeks into budget uh, season left and we really need to tax the wealthy so we can fund our schools and so mm. much more
1: mm. Say it. yeah and I just I want to say again I mean for people who are in the world of of education activism in New York like Sadie and Zakia are well-known folks um, so again it's 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 an honor to have you both on
0: uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and you know Zakia mentioned the campaign for fiscal equity C- uh, CFE uh, such a such an incredible story And I think what you know when I came to New York City in 2015 you know that it, uh, the campaign for fiscal equity and the people organizing around demanding that this money that we already won you know like get paid uh, was was some of the um, kind of north Star for me of understanding like you uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of different forces at play in New York City. Uh, and, and, you know, here's a group of parents, right? Here's a large group of parents who are organizing and demanding and winning and winning uh, uh, for the kids. And so, um, yeah, so much, so, so excited about today. So I wanna give a tiny bit of context for the uh, chancellor kind of world. Um, and I, you know, I was talking with a, a colleague, uh, I think yesterday, and we realized, oh yeah, there hasn't even been a chancellor for that long. Actually, there's only been a handful of chancellors at all. And so um, in some ways, uh, the role of chancellor is one that's still being defined by whoever holds it. Um, And so uh, when we're talking about Chancellor Richard Carranza, uh, uh, it's it's important to note that in some ways he was never quote unquote supposed to be chancellor, right? Bill de Blasio, the Italian-American, Brooklyn-based incoming mayor of New York City chose Carmen Farina. Right, Carmen Fariña, uh, who is the child of Castellano Spanish immigrants from Brooklyn, uh, and spent her entire year uh, career, spending 50 years in the system, her entire 50-year career in uh, New York City. Uh, Chancellor Fariña announced that she would be retiring in March of 2018, uh, and then this crazy, crazy what many people call a huge blunder, right? One of the strangest political blunders in the history of the city happened. On the 28th of February, the city announced that the new chancellor would be Alberto M. Carvalho, a well-known Portuguese-American superintendent from Miami-Dade County. Um, uh, Here's a brief description from the New York Times about what happened next. Then in less than 24 hours, triumph turned to embarrassment when the official Alberto M. Carvalho, abruptly, even impulsively in his own telling, changed his mind and renounced the job during a dramatic spectacle broadcast live on television Thursday. Mr. Carvalho, the superintendent of Miami-Dade County Public Schools, made his announcement before his school board in Miami, leading to cheers in the packed meeting room and fury and confusion in New York City. I'm breaking an agreement, Mr. Carvalho said. I shall remain in Miami-Dade as your superintendent. His words came during a special board meeting that turned into a three and a half hour exhibition of supporters begging him to stay.
1: Yeah, that was crazy. (laughs) <laughs> and anyone who was here at that time remembers that. Um, it was like, we have a chancellor. No, we don't. No, we don't. <laughs> um, and uh, it all happened. I
2: remember that we days. stayed We stayed in room 314, which is the press room in the DOE that day. And we we're all watching the TV. <laughs> then like, either later in the day, I got called into, um, I think it's 320, the like chancellor's room. And so we were all in there <laughs> and then Chancellor Barino walks back in. <laughs> And I think I started a champ four more years. I'm just like, anyway, it was a very funny moment, but she was like, absolutely not. Like, Not one. I've done my time. Um,
1: You know, I'm in Harlem and I have a dirt bike gang outside as you might hear. So it's real here.
0: Um, Part of life, part of life in the city. I'm pro dirt bike gang. If anybody wants to come (laughs) come at me on Twitter for that.
1: All right. So anyway, that was, yeah, it was a crazy time and Um, So what happened next was a week later, Richard Carranza, a Chicanx Chicanx former ESL student from Tucson, Arizona, um, who came up in the Tucson City School District, built the mariachi mariachi program there, um, then served as the Deputy Superintendent for Instruction, Innovation, and Social Justice in San Francisco, uh, served as Superintendent of Houston Independent Schools District in Texas. He was named... Chancellor for New York City Public Schools in what appeared to be a somewhat hasty decision. Uh, It was just about a week afterwards, right? And so let's get right to it. Uh, We wanna ask you two, how has this chancellor impacted the school system from your vantage point? Um, Either one of you can start, so take it away.
3: I can start, Sadie, if you want. Uh, so you know, I've been doing this work twenty plus years. I've been through a lot of different chancellors, not so many mayors, because one stole a couple of terms—a term or something—and um, uh, under this, under a mayor that put in a, a billionaire magazine exec, thought that was a good idea to run a system of, you know, black and brown kids.
0: That didn't last and, too long.
3: Yeah, five days. But, it's not even that it didn't last It's that you had the audacity like what does that say right. about how you feel about children and community members that you had to get a lawyer who to get a waiver to be the chancellor um who was just horrible right um and then you and had that was our
1: our prior mayor michael bloomberg yeah bloomberg sorry mom, yeah. yeah
3: and he had so yeah joe klein lawyer had to get a waiver. Bloomberg put in um, uh, what's her name, Kathy Black. Kathy Black. Mm-hmm. Dennis Walcott, who was horrible too, sorry, uh, yeah. and didn't do right by our schools, right? Who thought it was cute to be cooking waffles with the pre-K and and uh, tweed, right? Um, it was it was just bad, and so my experience and my what I share right now comes from that, from from understanding what it really looked like. To have chances who didn't care care about kids, mm. uh, a mayor who really didn't care about kids, right, um, and who put people in place inside of that building who didn't do everything they could to protect children. So here comes um, and Chancellor Farina. You know, we had uh, when she was a deputy chancellor way back. That's when I first started getting involved in education. So it's so where we came full circle, right? I have I had issues with her too, right? I think she cared about kids. Um, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that she cared about education either. Um, I just don't think that the vision that she had was the vision that black and brown parents had. So here we have a mayor who was thrust into the largest system in the country, education urban system in the country. Um, And the first thing he did was listen to the parents of the College for Educational Justice and, and ensure that there was $23 million put in implicit bias training for educators. We didn't think it, that was gonna happen. We thought it was gonna be a much longer battle. It was 18 months, but it was less under him, right? It was 18 months when, when uh, Chancellor Farina got in, way less than when he got in, right? He got hit right away with uh, white parents on the Upper East Side or West Side, wherever it was, that didn't like what he said. And he did not back down. And that was when we knew that we had somebody real. And he, has never, he had never backed down from challenging people who pushed when he pushed for integration, to end segregation, to end these uh, racist policies of the specialized high school exam or the gifted and talented, I'm not here to debate anybody. So if anyone's listening to this podcast, they not want to debate, I'm, the, I'm not debating that. That is what I know and that is what I believe. You don't have to believe that, right? Um, but what I do know is that he stood against all of those things at all odds. He was willing to take the shots so that the folks that he put inside internally could do the work. There's not many people out here who lead like that. I don't know a lot of people that lead like that, who are willing to take the shots and still stand in their dignity and challenge it. In the midst of being called all kind of xenophobic, racist things, he was willing to take the shots. And who knew he had lost 11 family members and friends to this devastating virus, right? Um, And had to deal with mayoral control under mayor. These are my words, not Sadie's under a mayor, right, who I don't care, I don't I don't think has a, a strong enough backbone to stand up against anything or anybody. So how do you work in a system like that? And if your core, if your, if your heart is in this work for Black and brown children and communities, which we know if they're doing well, everyone will do well. All children will do well. It doesn't mean that some will not. It means that we will all do well. Correct. If you're willing to stand up in those things and you have a boss, who is holding you, handcuffing you from doing what's right by kids, at some point there's a breaking point and you go, I gotta move on and I'm dealing with trauma and this is not healthy for me and or my family. And so did did he do everything right? Absolutely not. Was it perfect? No, could have been things been done better? Absolutely. But I'm here to tell you after 20 years of, or a little less than that, under, under 12 years under Bloomberg and all that was there, let me tell you, this man had the heart. He cared about our kids. And we all know, and I am with this, that the hardest thing is to get people to care and be from the place where some of these kids were to do this work. And he had that. The other piece was easier, I think, if the mayor had allowed him to do what he needed to do. Yeah. Well, my role when
2: the chancellor um, became the chancellor. So, uh, Just, you know, in 2014, I worked for Mayor Bill de Blasio from 2009, actually, as a volunteer, but then joined his public advocate's office, worked for him as he, uh, through his mayoral race on the government side, but became his special assistant and then basically worked inauguration and then joined Chancellor Farina as her special assistant. on her first Monday in, in office as Chancellor. Um, so I, you know, I worked very closely with both of these, with, with both of them. Um, I, when Chancellor Carranza came in, I was already the director of community affairs. So was tasked with his public engagement plan and how he would meet the people and listen to the people. And the first thing that he really insisted on doing was listening to students. And to school communities. Um, that's a big that's a that's a that's a shift.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And also that's my love language <laughs> is listening to communities. Um, mm-hmm. you know, this work is not for the faint of heart. Parents are dealing with a lot, students are dealing with a lot, teachers, like every single aspect, people who serve food to our young people, like every single part of this system. Um, 150,000 employees, 1.1 million students, we serve nearly a million meals a day. We're like, you know, the biggest municipality in the nation. Any constituency you go to, whether you're talking to internal folks um, or external folks, it's just a lot to hold. And um, as a leader, anyone who want, who has the, um, the capacity, the, the blood for it, the spirit of listening to people, absorbing their experiences, which are sometimes difficult, um, and, and then wanting to take it into action and being like, okay team, we heard this, let's do, let's do different. Let's experiment towards a different way. Let's hear a different thing. So that's what he wanted to do. And that, um, as I said, is a love language of mine. So I had a lot of respect for that. I met him, I, I met him as like, I was picking him up as a staffer and like we were just walking right into an event. It was his second week on the job. And I built an event, not alone with a team of wonderful people. Um, in Sunset Park. That was like a New York City Mexican welcome. And it was like hundreds of families, a lot of monolingual Spanish speaking families, but not only, um, but a lot of monolingual Spanish speaking families who were really, you know, getting involved in PTAs and parent leadership for the first time. And they certainly were working with me on district 15 diversity plan at the time. And so It was really awesome to see how he from off the bat embraced his culture in a way, showed up as a man of color, uh, centered by way of how he spent his time students monolingual Spanish-speaking families in Sunset Park, um, families um, who were who work with the organization MASA. He was there in, in um, the South Bronx and they don't just speak Spanish, they speak other indigenous languages as well. Like this was how he showed up and he wanted to hit the ground running. Um, and so we were working really hard together and um, the man said, thank you. And the man said, good work. <laughs> and any public servant knows like you just don't get that that much, and that's mm. cool. like it's the type of cape we wear. It's some a, a special type of masochism. <laughs> <A lot> of, <laughs> you don't get a lot of thank yous, and he just always said thank you or he said good work, Sadie, after an event. He really cared about the people. Like the event was not about me, but like as we would walk out or as he would get into his car and, and move to the next thing. Um, so I guess I would just say like, my impression was from the beginning, um, he was a principled leader. He had a set of values that centered people. And when you're in education, that's probably a good thing. Um, he was a person of color and a proud person of color. I'm, I'm as I mentioned, I'm from El Salvador, uh, a country that was never named when I grew up in school. So, you know, not being seen as people of color in, in certainly in white spaces, but just like in general is, pretty it's a powerful shift to feel like wow he's a a mexican man he's a proud mexican man he sees you know we're not we're not from the same background but he really that's it's not that he needs to try on an equity hat or perform an equity or let me try to be an ally it's like no he's a man of color in america Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i
0: i remember at several meetings uh for a period of months i think this was not too long after the listening tour um he would start every public appearance with like 30 seconds in Spanish. And he would just introduce himself in Spanish. So Richard, you know, know, whatever, he would say all this stuff. Uh, And and basically what he would say in Spanish is that when I was a student and I showed up to school, I didn't understand what anyone was saying because they were talking this language I didn't know. And then afterwards he would translate what he just said. Yeah, what I just told you was that. You know what you just felt, and I watched it a few times, and it was so effective. People would, would, were kind of stunned and uncomfortable and disoriented like, what is he doing? Why is he? And then he would change to English and he'd explain it, and, he, and there was kind of, you know, it, it had a powerful effect, I think. Um, and I think the, um, certainly the kind of ways in which he, um, uh, uh, act, I don't want to say acted, but like played the role, right? Did, did sort of symbolic uh, moments like that, I think was an important part of, of the decisions that he made. Um, so I want to, I want to, uh, I don't know, I don't want to like bash.
1: I, I want to stay on this for a little oh, bit okay. before we Sorry. go to the, before we I'll go to the other side of this. Yeah, let's, let, let's stay with, like, because there was a lot there. And I, I'm remembering one of the things, Sakia mentioned how he spoke to integration and segregation. And, and people who were in that um, will remember well that up until 2017, we, our former chancellor and our mayor refused to utter the words, integration or segregation. And they put out a plan for diversity in New York City mm-hmm. public schools. And it was a, something like a 14-page plan, and it only used the word diversity. It would not say integration or segregation. And so... His first press conference, I believe he, he started talking about it because he was already mm-hmm. out there listening and had already heard mm-hmm. from people who were coming to him and saying, hey, you know, this is one of the most segregated school systems in the country.
2: And he, and he heard it from students. I mean, not mm-hmm. exclusively from students, but understand that this he didn't make this up. He didn't mm-hmm. come in with an agenda. I, I believe that he's a man of color, and therefore maybe has some principles towards social justice. But that's not what he came in. He heard this t- everywhere he went. Mm-hmm. Our schools are segregated from young people. Mm-hmm. When you yeah. when, you're, when you're new to any, when you're new to any city, but also just like in general, if you're human and you hear students say, in "My high school, I don't have these sports. In my school down the block, they have this." I mean, very plain, you know, plain facts, clear experiences. There was no way, and hundreds of people, (laughs) hundreds. So there was, this this was not made up and he couldn't, he respected the students and the people that he heard from enough to lift up their voice and say, absolutely, this is what I'm seeing and this is what I'm hearing and we have to do something about it.
1: Yeah, and he did it right from jump. I mean, when he did it the first time, I kind of laughed. I was like, oh, he didn't get the memo. He's not supposed to say that but you know, he did it anyway. He, maybe he knew he yeah. wasn't supposed to, or maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't, maybe he didn't care, but he, he said it um, and he continued to say it. And I'm wondering, Sadie and Zakia, both from, again, from your perspective, part of what we've been talking about so far is just the impact of his language and the way he showed up. And, uh, and it says a lot about who he is as a person, but I'm also wondering if you could talk about like, what's the practical difference that that makes? that the mm-hmm. fact that he uses certain words or shows up in a certain way, like what difference does that make um, to the work that you do? Because I think it makes a real difference and people wanna always know about policy. Well, well what policy did he change? And, and as Zakia said earlier, I mean, the, we can talk about all the ways in which he was, we, we, we weren't always in the, or you know we, I was never in the room with him when the policies were getting hashed out, um, but we, can, we know that a lot of times his hands were tied uh, because of the way that we have mayoral control right and he's not the head policymaker for the system and yet he did have this impact and a lot of it was through his language and the way he, he presented himself so can you both talk about that
2: yeah so I can talk to it di- directly in that um, I have had the pleasure and privilege of working on some school diversity issues been a part of its um, journey through the Department of Education, and um, was one of those people who was advised as a public, as a public, public, public speaker for the department was advised to stay with the words diversity and equity and inclusion, um, to stay away from words like anti-racism, institutional racism, integration or segregation or desegregation, um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, But I think in essence, because it's just very complicated and there was no policy solution and a lot of different things. But so it made the job very difficult, as you can imagine, in certain communities when they'd ask, like, no, we don't want just diversity. We want meaningfully integrated schools. Um, And I'd be like, good point. Say more. Um, Right, right. (laughs) um, And uh, it was April 2nd, I believe, was the Chancellor Carranza's first day, 2018. And when he was able to say that, that enabled me in in the D15 diversity plans working group meetings, in the public workshops, in the other community conversations that I was leading or facilitating to open up to to be myself. And um, I'll just speak really quickly that, you know, for me, anti-racism is a, a proactive role, but it's really being able to be seen in your fullness and be able to be authentic and to be able to be celebrated in all of all your expressions, anti-racism for me, and and I know for Chancellor Garanza is an umbrella term. It doesn't mean we're ableist or we don't, or we're not expansive in our trans community. It's really a, a, a term, again, an umbrella term that says we're proactively against systems and policies that privilege some over others. And it's a, not a neutral term and th- and that's a call to action. And that was something that he was very proud about. And that's something that I'm, I'm also personally, you know, really proud about. And so part of that for me and how that showed up was I, as a staffer and a Department of Education official, was able to bring more myself mm-hmm. to communities in these conversations. And that makes space for other people to also bring themselves
3: mm-hmm. and
2: also deepen the conversation. And so not only was the language, um, did it earn us as a department some like well, okay finally they're naming something really important you can't you know you can't you can't heal it if you don't deal with it or you know something whatever the, the rhyme is okay. um, so it, you know and and people in the community with whom i work and with whom i serve they were like oh wow Sadie can be like a little more authentic or a little bit more open or you know it seems like she's really sort of leaning in and that that makes a difference so like his effect was not it didn't just stop with him it, it it actually made space for staffers and other public servants to show up differently and I think better serve mm-hmm. the people
3: mm-hmm. yeah I mean I I guess I would say you know just um, the way abram talked about how he opened meetings right it it allowed to, to allow somebody a group of folks to be seen who to to speak in your native tongue in a country that tells you and has done so much harm to get people to just Um, be something they're not be American talk English you know um, to make it okay and to do it in such dignity um, you know for for parents to experience that as well as to make it a teachable moment for others right Mm -hmm. so you then translate it and other folks are like oh yeah, that did feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that did, you know, I wasn't sure what was happening. Oh, is that how people feel sometimes? Oh, that's not a good feeling, right? And it's something as small as that, that might not even being caught by a lot of people, it's really powerful, right? A way to just come into a space. He's He was very vocal around the campaign for fiscal equity dollars and inequity that the state and speaking out and testifying about uh, that we need state funding in order to do a lot of these things. Um, even moving to the state level because he knew there needed to be uh, state action around the specialized high school exams, right? Like not being afraid to challenge those structures um, and to bring community into the space, those who have been working on it, um, to organize, you know, young people who were, were, uh, uh, you know, saying that it's keeping me out of that space, right? It's it's not an equitable Mm -hmm. space. um, To create an equity for all agenda, to put actual folks, who are longtime educators, diverse group, you know, Black women, Asian, Latinx, like men, you know, like all those people in spaces. And these, these are folks, you know, like the Paul Forbes of the world and the Rubies and the LaShawns and the Flavias, like, and, and people I'm not naming, right, that who are, are doing that work, that matters, right? It allows you then as a leader to go out and do some of the other stuff while the work gets done, right? And I don't think we can underestimate that enough. Um, and then I think also just him, you know, engaging with his mariachi band <laughs> mm-hmm. and and not even saying, I love mariachi and like, oh, it's so there exciting. But mixed, to there pull was some out mixed feelings. And be like, yeah. yo, I'm not just playing, I'm playing. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I know how to play this and the history of it and where it comes from. I just remember, you know, Make the Road. Uh, groups of uh, parent leaders from make the road. Just the pride and, and excitement about the party in the street of having a chance to like playing mariachi. What that could have, what that must have felt like, and what that had meant, you know. And I think it's things like that that you can't underestimate. But you also have to understand that in a system in white supremacy, when other folks see that, it becomes gaslighting. It becomes like all these things. It becomes attacks, and which is what he experienced, right? Um, from the right, or others who just thought he's trying to take something from me. Um, if we go back in history, we'll realize that that's always what happens, right? When we, when we have a leader who looks like us, can relate to us, then the people who they can't relate to um, think that that means somebody's trying to take something from me. And so therefore I must attack it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And so if we can underestimate the power of that, uh, I won't call him a journal. I won't call it a newspaper, but the uh, the rag, the post, you know, it just came after him. And and parents, white and Asian parents, were like calling him really horrible names. But he was the first one out there when that crazy man who was in the White House was saying really horrible mm-hmm. xenophobic, racist things. He was out there, like, let's go, you know, eating in in Chinatown. Let's go, you know, speaking out against them. Right, that's a sign of a leader, right, who cares about all of us, not just some of us. And I think we miss we miss that um, because of some of the other things that kind of rise up.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit, um, and and I I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with what you guys are saying. Um, uh, but I wonder if there are some specific places where you wish that we would have been a little more effective at kind of getting past those barriers like where, not not that we're looking to kind of like run a tally or or say what Carranza didn't do enough of or whatever but like are there some specific areas where you guys have seen like man like We really didn't make enough progress here. And like, you know, we 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 uh whatever the reasons are, I wonder if you know or think about or have theories about what the reasons are, but um where are some of the kind of like, oh, you know, we we, it would have been great if we could have done this walk around that was here.
3: I mean, I think what what I've heard, um, and if if people believe that then they feel that, then that's what that's that's not okay, right? Rather he, and the intention was there or not, which is one, like educators didn't feel like they've been listening to, especially under COVID, right? Like I think pre-COVID, he might've, you know, gotten, you know, been given a break on some things or, but in this moment of COVID, like people, raw emotions, fear, right? and And, and yeah. educators not feeling like they were listened to around the school reopening. Um, really eng- and, and they were not really engaged uh in those conversations parents the same way right like we we knew like we we don't want to, we're afraid we're this we're that like we don't know what's happening and you did not engage us in those conversations right the reality is this is what people feel those those most impacted the consumers of the of the product that you're putting out then that 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 cannot be invalidated right it has to be validated um and so I think, you know, all those things are real. Young people who didn't think he was moving quick enough on integration work, right? right. Um, you know, so I think all those things are real um, and could they have been done better? And yeah, they probably could have, absolutely. Um, and I do think that also in that process that once again, mayoral control plays a role no, in we, that we, uh, when you have an agenda that you, that you really want to move forward but your boss is like, Ooh, mm, maybe not yeah. now, wait a minute on this so don't say this too loud. Um, so yeah, yeah. Like, I,
0: yes. I mean, the reality with a lot of these things is that there are very hyper pressurized, multiple uh, people pulling in the opposite direction. You mentioned like teachers going back to school. I just the high number of like union and and like, um, like uh, mayoral level kind of conversations that are happening around that. How much does the chancellor really able, you know, like, now, could he have done something? I, you know, that's that's where I think, sure, yeah, like something could have been done. It would have been better if something had been done. But, you know, this is this is kind of what happened. I would say to you yeah, look yeah. like you were about to say something, I think.
2: Okay. Yeah, I, I think I you know, I think it's really important to reflect on growth areas and growth areas like for ourselves and for a system and as a team of people. Uh mm-hmm. of one of which I like was a proud team member of his. And I stood by him, you know, like I'm a very proud team member, which means that this is a growth area for me. Um, I think, and especially now, um, given the high rate of anti-Asian racism that we are seeing as a result of 45, having the nerve and audacity and disgusting moral judgment to call call it a China virus, right, like I put that in quotes, absolutely you know, disgusting yeah. beyond what my wildest dreams, even before that though, as a as a as a proud indigenous person, as you saw, you heard I say I'm pro-black, Right? I have a big community of people of color who are at my birthday parties, who are at my family dinner, right? Like this is my this is my family are people of color. And I'll say as a growth area, how do we, as a black and brown, which already has a lot there, become more expansive with our, our Asian community, who, by the way, is like 49 different nations are under the term mm-hmm. Asian. Lots of linguistic diversity, lots of all types of different backgrounds, ethnicities, heritage, like all the things I, um, I'm i sitting with. And that's why I'm trying to be you know, vulnerable and say, I think this is a growth area and a calling for me mm-hmm. as a person um, going forward is like, how do I show up you know as a as a pro-Asian anti-racist how do we as black and brown people keep building on our own um bridges and and colorism and all the all the things that are wrapped up in race and racism but make space for our Asian brothers and sisters and and people to enter the discussion as well right um yeah keep sitting we're the super majority We are the super majority in New York City. We're the super majority and the super majority of people want music in their classrooms, they want art classes, they want equity, they want some diversity, they want some sense of gym and freedom and dance. Like the super majority of families in New York City want the same thing for their kids. And so I think about Fred Hampton is you don't fight racism with racism, you fight it with solidarity. And so as a Mm growth area and as radical bureaucrats, I wonder how we, Abraham and Sam and Zakia, how do we show up differently in that space? How do we, how can, what shifts do we need to make to keep, keep, keep building in that, in that, in that way? So that's yeah.
0: what I'm Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the tensions around the exam schools and exam seats, mm-hmm. right? And the ways in which that uh, touches on a very uh, core kind of strategy. That a lot of our families in New York City, who are coming here to educate their children as New Yorkers, right? They they have these expectations, right? Uh, and 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 uh, within that was kind of the seed for this, like, oh man, we have a lot of work to do because we're not we're not really in solidarity. We don't see, uh, I mean, certainly seeing it as a as a like land grab for good seats. That's not solidarity. But on top of that, when we can easily be played against each other, Mm. right? And like, you know, something like that can be used, you know, then then we have work to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the flip side of this announcement is that Misha Ross Porter, a graduate of Queens Vocational and Technical High School, who's a founding staff member at Urban Assembly's first school, um, has had an incredible career fighting for our students and has worked within the DOE for uh, I think over 20 years now, has now been named the new chancellor, the incoming chancellor. Um, So this is really exciting news. What can you both tell us about what to expect from Chancellor Porter? Chancellor Ross, Chancellor Ross Porter? I don't know.
0: Do do you know? Does she have a preference? Do we know? Maybe we should start with Chancellor Ross Porter and let her say Chancellor Porter.
2: We're, we're pointing at each other. Um, uh, chancellor Ross Porter, Misha, I'm going to call her Misha for now because that's how I know her. Um, but uh, certainly when she becomes Chancellor, I'll probably like hear that mom voice in my head and just call her Chancellor all the time like I did with Chancellor Carranza. Um, so she and I worked together on, with young people on developing a facilitation guide for the school diversity advisory groups youth symposium that they did on school diversity and integration and the town halls that the school diversity advisory group commissioned or said that they wanted to do, but the DOE was operationalizing it. Um, I was one of, I was. I would say the like DOE event organizer. I did not work alone, but I was sort of Mm -hmm. the coordinator for all of those um, events. We did eight that year, uh, which was spring of 2018 and then another two in 2019. But I worked with her again, shoulder to shoulder talking about what should we call this? What should we name this? And um, those are are important memories because that's like the work. Mm -hmm. The work is you're in the meeting with your pens out talking about Mm -hmm. this oh no I think that like Zakia and I have done parent conferences together have planned agenda together like it's just like that's that's the work um and so the good news is is she's about you know there's this life right I mean how many water bottles have we all carried and nappy like we just do everything that needs to happen in order for the big stuff to happen so she's about that um but she also is a principled leader and was one of the first um, folks I saw that really modeled as a woman and a woman of color that you can be equal parts like as serious as a heart attack and warm and inviting. Mm -hmm. And that's not a model of leadership that I've personally had very much Um, with people who are in power.
0: <laughs> that resonates a ton with me. The times that I've interacted with Misha, and she's asked me to call her Misha, and I can never do that with superintendents. It always feels funny to call people that by their first name when they're like the embodiment of power or whatever. But um, but uh, she she was, you know, so friendly. Like, I was like, why are you being nice to me? I don't, like, you're, uh, but, and, and it's so contrary to the culture um, in in the public sector and in the DOE specifically, um, of a very kind of hierarchical and siloed existence, you know. So that really resonated with me a lot. Thanks, Sadie.
3: Yeah, I guess I would. I hadn't had the. I have met her because um, we've worked with uh, Community School Fifty Five for a number of years, going to Albany and like around the the state stuff. And I know when she they've had events there. Um, she's well, been there. I'm not sure. Was she? Is she the? Was she the superintendent at Jamal School too?
2: Casa like Middle
3: School. I think it's eleven. I think
2: I thought that was true.
3: You could be right. Sure I don't know. I don't know that, that to be true. I think so I'm gonna the, let it go, and I'm gonna keep it moving. Um, just to say, but our partner groups that we work with all the time—New Settlement Parent Action Committee. Um, in the Bronx, I'm actually just coming off of a College for Educational Justice organizing meeting, and they were just talking about her and how, uh, you know, the Healing Center Schools work that they're doing. Um, how crucial she was in making sure that parents um, and students sat on those committees. Um, even though everybody wasn't all in and excited about that, like that's the reason that there are parents and students engaged in those conversations. Conversations and part of that whole work. Around healing center schools in um in the Bronx and just tons of just praise from parents and community members and I always that to me that's the go to right if parents uh and community members are on the ground and yeah if you got young people too that's a good trifecta right there uh, I think educators as well but definitely for me it's those 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 folks like as parents community members and students if they're all in on somebody I think they've got they've really put their um, they did the work in the community yeah. to to build that trust. And that's I think that's really powerful. But we also know, as I uh, tweeted out, that if they came after Chancellor Carranza, they are definitely coming after the first Black woman Chancellor yeah. uh, in New York City. And we've already begun to see that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's important to note that when this has not been reported publicly, so I don't know how she was chosen, uh, but I feel like Chancellor Carranza must have had something to do with it. And if he did, you know, that's part of his legacy, too, right? Um, mm-hmm. The first Black woman chancellor and somebody coming straight out of the Bronx,
0: um, you know, which
1: is, is a borough that is constantly underrepresented uh, in proportion to its need in city politics. So Yeah, under everything,
0: under yeah. resourced undervalued under, you know, I think the, I think it says a lot to have a chancellor uh, who was uh, principal superintendent, executive superintendent in the Bronx. Um, I think it, um, you know, if you know New York City, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of feelings in across the boroughs. People like to kind of like stump for their boroughs and trash the other boroughs. Uh, but you know, the South Bronx is, remains the poorest congressional district in the country. Right, the the we know you know we know looking at all measures of school quality that the schools in the Bronx are struggling. That's why charter schools have such a foothold in the Bronx. The Bronx is one of the first places in America where the charter school system popped, charter school idea popped up because the schools in the Bronx were so bad. And so um, within that, to me, I, I see uh, Misha as somebody who who can be very real and pragmatic about the realities on the ground. This is not a like, you know, uh, I can think of a few leaders, chancellors and deputy chancellors who were very kind of academic and theoretical, right? And there were some nice diagrams that were available, right? Um, But I think, you know, I think there'll be some of that too. You know, I'm not, you know, I think, uh, I think Misha is a very strategic, you know, you look at the Bronx clan in the last several years and everything that's happened, you know, uh, clearly there's, there's some, some good, uh, evidence, right, that that Misha is a strong leader, but I think she's going to have that very kind of visceral experiential knowledge of, like, what it means to be in a school, right, under these kinds of circumstances, and that's why the chancellor spends so much of their time going from school to school, because it's very important to us that we imagine the leader be someone that kind of goes down with the people and, like, sees things, right? Well, Misha's already done that, Right, she's, yeah. she's, she's seen and experienced a bunch. And so I think that's gonna make right a difference, the my take.
1: So what do you think, Sam? You... What's
0: your take on, on the new chancellor? You're not gonna get off the hook that easy.
1: Oh, uh, I, I've actually, I've been in a couple meetings uh, with her and um, they, are, they were meetings that were kind of informal gatherings of progressive people within the system that she showed up for and she didn't have to be there. And so if you show your face at some of these meetings that I'm talking about, um, I respect you right off the bat because it's after work, it's with very cool people and, um, but they're not, they, they were not places where- They're not you, gonna pull
0: any punches. Yeah, they're,
1: they're gonna not pulling any well, punches. But also it wasn't a place for grandstanding. She wasn't showing right. up to pol- like politic.
0: Right. She was
1: showing up because she wanted to be part of the conversation. Um, so um, between that and, and all the positive uh, impressions that I know other people have of her, people who I respect, um, I think it's very exciting. So we just want to end by by asking both if you both if either of you want to say anything else, any final words, including anything you want to plug. Um, so any last thoughts? I'm about ready that? for the tell-all book, Sadie. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> When's it coming out?
1: Um, but uh, and, and when, when you close uh, when you close out, please uh, include your Twitter handles in there if you want to Twitter follow uh, out there. So. Um, Zakia, we're going to go first with you this time because you kept letting Sadie go first. So, Zakia, well, anything? Any final thoughts?
3: Yeah. Um, the The next few months, um, we need to be. There's there's nothing wrong with protecting something to allow it to happen. It doesn't mean that doesn't mean you doesn't mean you're not ac- holding folks accountable. And the the work of, of Misha Porter for her to be able to hit the ground running is gonna be the need for all of us who care about equity, who care about children and who believe in her to protect her. And when I say that, I mean, when they come in the press and, or the the language gets, you know, where we know that what they're really saying, you know, mm-hmm. what they're trying to say, everybody needs to come out and say, this is unacceptable. Um, and we need to make sure that she's able to do a job while also understanding that advocates will still not be giving a second or a break uh, for anything especially since she knows the system we're going to be on her saying you know we still want culturally responsive education right now we don't want testing in our schools right so we already had the current chancellor chancellor Carranza talking about opt out that's a whole nother thing we to get a chance to talk about kudos to him for saying I would if I was a parent right um, while he still is in there for a few more days um, and that in order for us to Uh, Not knowing what's going to happen in election candidates, if she will even be the next chancellor moving forward into after this, uh, all the elections, mayoral elections, et cetera, and uh, city council, um, that we need to make sure that there's an agenda out there. So we are part of New Yorkers for Racially Just Public Schools. So go to our website. I think I want to say it's educationforliberation.org. Um, but we will share it with both of you also you can share with others the goal of it is to create a racial justice agendas for education for any candidate it's not to choose who's going to be mayor or city council or any office it is to let this, this those candidates know that they are a group of powerful organizations a couple of dozen organizations who have been doing this work for decades some for a few years youth groups um, parent-led groups, community groups, CECs, ECC, all those things. Like These are the core group of folks that if you really want to run for something, this is the agenda you need to be pushing forward. On the mm-hmm. statewide level, we're in the midst of the budget fight. We have four weeks left. There's an Invest in Our New York Act that we are trying to get every elected official to support. We have lots of uh, senators and assembly members in support of it now, but there's far too many that are not. Six bills could raise up to $50 billion with a B with ab dollars to close a $30 billion gap, and as well as uh, truly invest in housing, education, healthcare, and a whole host of other things that really will lift all boats. We can end homelessness. We can do so much for our city if we were willing to get rid of the scarcity mindset and not think that we cannot do this. We can collectively do this. We have a majority, super majority. There's no reason we can't. So we need all your listeners out there Call your assembly member, call your state senator, and say, support, the invest in our New York Act. Um, it's time to really protect students, not billionaires. It's time to protect people and homelessness. It's time for us to find our moral center. Because if budgets are a moral document, we've been doing really horrible um, over the last few years, especially under this governor. We have been building budgets off the back of Black and brown folks. And during this pandemic, we are the ones, they are the ones that have kept this city going. Um, and so we're not willing to protect them in this moment. Uh, I'm not sure when we will be able to. So we need them to be bold and courageous, but they only will be if your constituents are putting them on the on the line and on the hook mm-hmm. for bringing home those dollars. Oh, and Zakiya and uh, sorry Z A N S A R I eight is my Twitter ha- Twitter handle. So please follow me, and it's A Q E underscore N Y. Please follow us. Uh, go to our website, sign up to get emails. We're constantly having online actions, in-person actions, anything we need to do. Can't stop, won't stop.
2: Awesome. 100% applaud Zakiya for everything she does and for how you show up. Um, this was a real treat to be on po- on this podcast, but on this podcast with you. I always look to you. Um, Appreciate
3: you, Sadie, a whole take bunch.
2: Big time. You know, like we, we really show up for one another, um, and from different sides of the of the uh, different different ways, different shape, shifts, Not different sides, like opposite sides. Just different different places. And so it's important as radical bureaucrats that we all like see. There's all types of different creative Mm -hmm. ways where we can show up and make our voice heard. Mm. Um, As I said, I'm a a public school parent. I'm a parent of a young brown kid. I'm a parent of a brown kid who is staying remote this year because we're in an intergenerational home. We know that brown children or students of color this year are staying home four times more likely and um, doing all remote than their white counterparts. We know about the academic learning loss. Misha knows about this from her own lived experience, from her professional experience. We expect and, and hope that she will utilize the experiences of the supermajority of families, um, and lift up the data to support and to prove and to prove over and over again the things that we're saying. So that we can shift our department's priorities to again support the supermajority of students, um, academic learning loss uh, is at the top of every almost every parent I know's mind, even students' mind, teachers' mind, my own mind, and so. Ale- hoping that we continue to connect the conversation between integration as an effective uh, intervention tool that will create more equitable and excellent outcomes for our young people. Um, connecting those conversations so it's no longer equity versus excellence that spoiler alert, you can't have one without the other. Building upon the chancellor's legacy and I know it's a little dramatic to say legacy because he's, he's still with, very much with us, but building on the legacy um, of using their language to connect the dots between academic learning loss and really trying to do 5R real integration um, and not got to handle COVID. And then we can't keep, we cannot. Our the super majority of our families and our students cannot afford that kind of discussion any longer. Um, it is both, and that is the social emotional work. That is the healing centered schools that um, Zaki is talking about. That is of course, equitable funding and early childhood is all the things, um, but I am lifting up integration specifically as an academic intervention to address the learning loss that we know we are going to deal with in this moment, right? So not to wait, um, the urgency for me is immediate and, and present and even in my home. So I'll just leave it like his biggest legacy is us. Mm-hmm. parents mm-hmm. and, and, and um, radical bureaucrats working together to keep the system really in service of again, the super majority of students and families.
0: Um, wow, so much um, to go through. Thank you guys so much. And I really wanna thank you from the bottom of my heart for persevering in the work that you mm-hmm. do. Um, I know that as Sadie mentioned earlier, sometimes it can feel thankless, it can feel all sorts of ways. Um, but me personally, I look to, uh, to really both of you, largely through social media, but like I really look to, um, to your leadership. Um, and I think that that's important. Um, it, it is important that we, you know, give, give, give our roses, right, while, while uh, you're still here. Um, so thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for being who you are.
1: Absolutely. I mean, Abram said it great. But I will add that I've told Sadie before, when, when Sadie's train gets going, I'm jumping on the Sadie train. So um, <laughs> thank you for your leadership, Sadie, and, and, uh, and Zakia as well. You know, um, again, usually from a distance, but educationforliberation.org is the website. Um, and uh, those campaigns, we heard you. Um, so we're, we're going to look that up and, and listeners, make sure you do as well. Um, so thank you. So, Abram, we got to wrap up like good bureaucrats, right?
0: We've got to wrap up. We'll give a, a little bit of music as we say goodbye uh, to St. Yeah. Anzaquia. Thank you guys so much.
1: Congo no congado,
2: Brasil Brasil Brasil
1: Pra mim Deixa Cantar de novo Trovador
0: well we're pretty busy these days at the radical bureaucrat between the global pandemic and our own personal journeys and families uh you know we'll be back soon uh with more in the meantime you can help us out by listening to the old ones and by following the podcast and leaving us a review on apple, on the apple podcast app in particular it's really the best way for small podcasts to reach new users also check out uh RadicalBureaucrat.com. uh that's uh B- Oh, it's it's misspelled in my script. Also, check out RadicalBureaucrat.com for show notes and more.
1: (laughs) You better know how to spell bureaucrat. Um, But we're going to end by being good bureaucrats. The views expressed here are personal opinions and do not reflect the official or unofficial position of any government agency, policy, party, leader, or really anyone besides the two of us, and maybe you, but maybe not. This content has not been sponsored or approved by anyone and was mostly just made because we wanted an opportunity to talk about things that matter to everyone, whether they realize it or not. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone.